It was about, uh, no, three, four months ago, I was uh, sitting in our living room with our growth group, one of the, the key things we have here at Bergen Park Church in terms of helping people grow in the faith. And um, as we were sitting together, we had been discerning what our needs were, physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual, and, and coming to a point where we were going to share what those were and what we hope we could get out of uh, this growth group and the next study we were doing. And so some of us were sharing, you know, questions that we had about our growth group. And and then uh, one of the guys here this morning actually said, I want to swing for the fence. You know, I, I want to hit a home run on this one. He says, I, I want to know how to get spiritual strength to handle all the challenges and, and, and all the changes that are coming up in my life. Where, where does God show up for that? And then another person said, I want to swing for the fence too. Why am I on this planet? You know, what, what's my purpose? What am I doing here? Diane Pulvermiller, who I'm going to pick on because she's away and she can't chastise me until she gets back, Tom. Do not email her. Please tell her I said this. Diane Pulvermiller says, well, I have one. And so as Diane, you got to understand, Diane, since 2001, he, our church with the Deweys who were going since early 90s, but she's been going to care for the, some abandoned children of that country. And it gets to you. It, it just gets to you. So she so says, I've got one, as long as we're swinging for the fence. She says, why? And from her background, she didn't need to say anymore. What she was saying is, why these children? Why did they have to be given up? Why did they get so, such poor treatment both in their homes and, and then even worse treatment in the, in the state orphanages? Why? There's no reason. They're, they're loved by God. Why? And, uh, of course, I answered that just like that. No. You know, there's some times in which you've got to shut up and just let people express And friends, there's all sorts of reasons, and we'll look at some of those today in terms of why is there such suffering in the world? And and, and there's many common ones that we share together. But I want to say this, that this morning I want us to look at one that Jesus gave. And when he gave it, I want you to know nobody else in any other religion has ever had the audacity to give the reason for suffering that Jesus gave at this moment. So as we read it, I think some of you are going to get a little tipped, okay? And the only reason that Jesus could give this is if he's the son of God, then he has the authority to say what nobody else has said. Uh, But some of you would also be saying, well, I think that is sort of skirting the issue. I understand that. But why suffering exists, you need to know, is not a new question. It's all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout man's history. Uh, More than that, all the answers that we give for the purpose for human suffering or the reason behind it, uh, there's all sorts of things. But understand that most people are asking it as they step back and and, and they, they, they query from an intellectual or philosophical level. And we're going to deal with that a little bit today, but also understand that you just can't answer philosophical questions. All philosophy has to do with human experience and what people are going through. And so 
Jesus gives an answer to his disciples in their philosophical question, but he gives an answer for also all skeptics. You find it in John chapter 9, which is uh, one of the great, you might say, spiritual encounters that Jesus has with an individual. And in there, there's a certain and specific situation where this question comes up, and it's asked by his disciples, the 12 who were following along with him. And here's the situation. John chapter 9, I begin. As, uh, as he went along, he saw, now understand Jesus takes the initiative, he saw a blind man or a man blind from birth. Now, apparently this was well known in terms of where this man was begging, And so his disciples asked him, now here's the philosophical, theological question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, as you hear that question, you have to understand the setting and what's being taught in in the Hebrew religion. Uh, It is a, a, a festival in which people are coming by the droves, tens of... Uh, hundreds of thousands, perhaps, in Jerusalem, and, and they're there to celebrate the goodness of God. But there in the midst of the goodness of God is this man who was born blind. And the d- theological question was, what's the cause of his blindness? They believed that all adversity was God's wages for people's sin. But this one, you see, is different. So that what they're asking is, okay, this man is born blind, so... Is he born blind because God could foresee in the future the sins that he would commit and therefore cause them to be blind? Or was he born blind because his parents had committed a sin and now it is uh, visited or set upon him, the punishment of the parents was set upon him? So, Lord, what is it? And all of these are 12 disciples, none of whom is blind none of whom can really step into that situation with that individual. But they have this burning philosophical question. Who committed the sin that resulted in this person being blind? Intellectual question. You know, as I talk to many of you, you don't have time for these questions. Maybe you've given some time to them and you say, I can't answer them, I'm just moving on. Some of you would say, it doesn't matter why he, how or why he was born blind. What matters is, is probably the same thing this guy is asking, this blind man from birth. What, what he's probably asking is not, why am I born blind, but how, much, how many coins are in the cup today? How am I going to get by for dinner? Uh, when I get home, will there be uh, a place to sleep? You know, he, he's worried about more of his physical needs, not, not the issues of why he's blind. This is a question that's asked by people who have stepped back. I want to know the correct philosophical answer. And friends, I want to know those answers. You know why? Because my kids will ask me, and they have. People where I've worked have asked me. Some of you have asked me. Why is there so much suffering in the world? And I usually look at you with great confidence and go, abada, 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 abada. There's many reasons that we can look at. But what, what the difference is, is that we might be asking, not why me, but why her or why him? Not the suffering I'm going through, but suffering in general, which this person seems to be shackled with. Uh, 
And, and understand, there's a clear message I want you to he- hear before I go any further as we talk about suffering. When you look at Scripture, and, and I'm going to say this as lightly but as clearly as I can. When you look at Scripture, Jesus, Paul, Moses, all of them, the wages of all of our sins, our parents and ours, is eternal death. Not blindness. Death. This is what we all truly deserve. And Jesus has come to change that. But in this situation, Jesus has come to change this this blind man and what he can look forward to for the rest of his life. So as this question is asked, both ancient and current reasons, you know, now that we're in an age of uh, scientific reasoning and discoveries, we often say a person's suffering is due to defective genes. The man was born blind probably because his body was formed with this disability. His, his nerve tissues just did not develop correctly. And in terms of the famous French philosopher Lady Gaga, I was born that way, okay? I was born that way, right? Now, uh, then understand that m- many of us suffer from selfish acts of others. Uh, people choose their comfort and security and their needs at the expense of ours. Some people in this, in, in this world are walking around with money and possessions that were one time mine. And they took them. Why? Because they chose themselves over you. We understand human selfishness. Sometimes we suffer due to human error. You know, no evil was intended, but still something went wrong. Uh, as an example, uh, uh, an airplane that loses its jet engine and, 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 and you know, it's filled with passengers as, as the ones uh, did over Midway. And, and, you know, why? Well, somewhere along the line, somebody goofed or the engine that they designed or planned just didn't have the reserves to, to make it through the whole trip. Uh, I suffer from my selfishness and I reap the consequences of the bad or the the wrong choices I make. Now, I probably could have lost my license if every time I was speeding, I got a ticket. And Barb's nodding. Yep. Didn't say that again. But I can honestly say that every time I've gotten a ticket, and who keeps count, okay? but, (laughs) But every time I've gotten a ticket, I deserved it. And uh, if you want to hear a great story, talk to Barb. Talk about Jim's first speeding ticket. Okay. Then uh, I I have to admit, as I look at the guy, yeah, you're probably right. You got the radar gun. All I got is a lead foot. So you're right. I have suffered due to family traits that I have either learned or inherited uh, from my mom and dad. It's not their sin. It's more their family traits. I have suffered sometimes for no known reason. That's called unjust suffering. Uh, which is what you explore if you read the book of Job. There's no explanation for it. There's no explanation for tsunamis, earthquakes. I mean, there's, there's geological ones and, and weather ones. But, but we, to call them acts of God, now that's really giving God a bad rap. Okay? And then we suffer for a fallen world and the institutions that this world promotes. As an example... Only one uh, family in our church lost their home in that mortgage crisis, the, you know, the debt crisis. 
and it was a terrible situation, and they probably made some bad choices. But as you look at the whole system, you've, you've got to agree, um, it's a fallen world out there because uh, government promoted it, banks uh, worked to make sure that it kept going until it reached that bubble point, and greedy people like me said, man, I can get this loan rate for three and a half years. I, I, it's like I'm going to pay nothing for this huge house, but what about the fifth year? And it was a bad system. Now, those are some of the ways in which we point to life and we say, you know, life's not fair. Why me? Why others? But when Jesus comes to this situation and he sees that man born blind, he wants to give another reason that is worth exploring and and considering for each of us. And, and, you know, he, he, here's what the disciples do, and this is what I love about Jesus. They go, Jesus, was it A or B? Was it this man's sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus looks at him and says, how about C, none of the above, and then D, the reason I'm going to give you. So in a real multiple choice, the answer is C and D. So what would Jesus' answer be? Well, as he looks at them, he now begins to explain, and this is hard to take, especially if you are a skeptic or, or you're really struggling with the kindness, the goodness, the love of God. But here's what he says. I'm in John chapter 9, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, let's be honest. Each of them has sinned, but what he's saying, this is not the cause for this man's blindness from birth. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we, talking to his disciples, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in in the world, I am the light of the world. Light meaning the absence of darkness, meaning blindness. Okay. So this man's lifelong disability is not a result necessarily of anybody's sin. But it's the intention of God that this man's story and what's about to happen bring glory to God. So we got to take a moment to hear what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Um, what he's saying is, at this moment, guys, we're not going to... I mean, this is what he's not saying. The philosophical reasons behind this man's blindness. We're not going to go there today. Uh, <clears throat> So what he refuses to get into is the very question that they're asking. This is not a time for philosophical deliberations. There are times and seasons for that. I had a time and season for that. It was called four years of college and five years of seminary. We asked all those questions when we left with just the same answers and the same questions that we came with. But this is what he does say. This man is blind so the work of God may be displayed in his life. What he's saying is, this very situation that you are facing now has more to deal with God's reputation and that it increases among men. This is what the issue is, that when God shows his power in this man's life, God's reputation will increase. His glory will swell. This will be a clear display of the work of God in this man's life. Now he goes through this unique procedure uh, before the man is actually healed. 
And if you study all the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus heals about nine different blind men in nine different ways. What does that tell you? It's not about the medication that Jesus used. It's about the medicator, you know, the one who applies it. It's about the Lord who approaches blind people. So uh, he goes at it a very specific way. And I want to say this. The spit of God is not curative. Okay? But he spits in the dirt. He forms a, a mud. Uh, he, he places it on the man's eyes. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then Jesus leaves him. And it was up to the man to say, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm still blind. Or the man could do what Jesus had actually told him. Go all the way to the pool of Siloam, which was a bit of a walk, especially when you're blind. Okay, All of this, there was nobody there to help him. He gets there, he gets into the pool, he washes. And all it simply says is, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. That's it. It's as simple as simple can be. The medicator gave him something that would work for him. And the medicator then gives him a command, and the medicated one goes and he actually obeys the command. How many times have I been told, three a day, three a day. But I keep saying, you know, I could save a little money if I took two and a half, or something like that. He does exactly what Jesus says. And so he leaves seeing And here's the issue. Jesus generates non-existent nerve tissue. Ask your doctor how that happens. You medical people. uh, It's either non-existent or not working, okay? He generates non-existent or non-working nerve tissue. And the man apparently sees like an adult, not like a baby who's everything fuzzy for the first few weeks until the eyes develop. Now that is the work of God displayed in this person's life. Now the rest of the whole chapter is, please go home and read it today, it is so good. The rest of the whole chapter is having this man, uh, you might say, suffer again, but the unintended consequences of him being able to see. What do I mean by that? Well, he, he realizes that though now he can see, he's going to be surrounded by people who have blind hearts. They have a blind faith, a, a bad blind faith. They don't believe at all. So, you know, with all the new medications we get, you understand that there's always these, these either this small print or this person talking very fast at the end of the commercial saying, you know, if, if you do this, here are possible side effects. Um, you uh, may start to hallucinate. You, this, this may make you very ugly or you may die. And as they say that, they, want, they don't want to get sued. Well, every television commercial does that for legal reasons. This blind man has one that he could never anticipate. No one believes him. No one believes him. He starts with his neighbors. His neighbors see him as he walks home, and they say, well, this, he must have had a twin who wasn't born blind. It looks like him, but it can't be him. They cannot believe that God displays his work and his energy and his, and his healing power. And so it's, it, it can't be him is what they're saying. Then his parents are brought into the religious leaders, and they say, oh, that's our son, all right, but don't ask us how he got healed. That's... That's not our problem. It's very clear they were intimidated by the religious leaders. 
And then the religious leaders are there and they're saying, well, we guess it's him, but it couldn't possibly be Jesus who did the healing. The religious leaders believe this man was born blind and he now sees, uh, but Jesus could not be the healer. What we have here is a clear case of blindness, not snow blindness, not visual blindness, not physical blindness. We have spiritual blindness. And if you have the NIV, it says it right there, you know, as the subtitle. This is a bad case of spiritual blindness, and it's put right next to a bad case of physical blindness. God can heal the physical blindness. But a man's heart? Oh, my gosh. Is that a tough nut to crack? So... Now, uh, it gets so bad that they start a, what you might say, insinuations about uh, why Jesus could not have done this because he must be, you know, empowered by the devil or he can't be a prophet or anything like that. And then when they're done with Jesus, they make character assassinations about the former blind man. And here is the greatest thing that he says. He says, all I know was I was blind, but now I see. You ever heard that in a song recently? You know, understand it wasn't made up. The guy that wrote Amazing Grace was a reader of Scripture, and he took it right from there. All I know, and he's, you know, he's talking about his spiritual blindness. This guy is talking about his physical blindness. I was blind, but now I see. And I, guys, I can't deny that. It is what has happened to me. So for that statement and many others where he begins to ridicule the religious leaders, you can ridicule me, but not these guys, okay? Uh, For that statement, they throw him out. He's excommunicated probably from his synagogue. There's no place where he can go to express his faith, to give his thanksgiving. He's out on the street, and then it says this towards the end of the chapter. I'm in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, in other words, Jesus goes looking for the once blind man. He asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, what we're getting at here is, okay, Jesus has worked on this physical blindness of yours, which is truly an amazing feat. But now Jesus wants to work and do something in you that your neighbors, your parents, and the religious leaders could not swallow. He wants to take you where they couldn't go. So he finds them, and then he asks them that question. He's dealing with his spiritual vision, and look at this conversation. He finds him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the answer is, who is he, sir? So that, uh, tell me so that I can believe in him. And, and Jesus' answer is, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. It is Jesus. I'm the one who is the Son of Man. Not just the one who healed you, but I am God's Son sent to you. The Messiah you have been waiting for and your whole nation. And then he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And so, you, you see, now he sees completely. He sees physically. He sees spiritually. And he's surrounded by people who see physically but don't have a clue spiritually. They are blind. And Jesus says, That's, this is the light that I brought. 
How, how do we take this and what do we do with this? Because I want to say this. Uh, when we try to quote Jesus and say it very accurately, sometimes we think we're just like Jesus and we should say exactly as he says. When you're in this account, please understand, be very careful who you say it to and when you say it. Otherwise, it can sound heartless. And, and we have to be, and we've been accused of that as, as Christians. Uh, well, yeah, you are suffering now, but God's going to work it all out for good. Don't worry about it. You know, and, and here, I'll pray for you. Oh, good. Are you better yet? No? Okay. Okay. Well, come back next week and we'll see what we can do. You see, we, we might quote Jesus. We, we might quote him accurately. But we're, we don't understand the person we're talking to and, and the way we're supposed to say it and the time in which they're open to it. Um, one of the great... Minds, Christian minds of the last century it was a man by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge. And uh, he went through a situation uh, helping somebody. And I just wish Malcolm Muggeridge was around when uh, Steve Jobs was asking the same question. Steve Jobs of Apple. He goes to his Lutheran pastor. And I don't say Lutheran because Lutherans don't know anything. They know a lot of things, okay? But he goes to this Lutheran pastor, his pastor, and he asks, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why are people uh, dying in southern Sudan or some, some part of Africa? And the pastor just thinks, oh, you know, you're a kid. You don't get it. You don't understand. And so he sort of brushes him off. And Steve Jobs turns to uh, not answering the question but finding inner peace through Western Buddhism. And as far as we know, that's maybe how his life ended. We, you know, we don't know. Malcolm Muggeridge, one of the great apologists and, and speakers who could speak both with persuasion and with reason uh, to, to his whole country, uh, convincing people not just to trust in Christ, but to follow Jesus Christ. He'd give lectures and be involved in debates. And one night in one of these situations, a youth comes in. But this youth comes in uh, to the hall which he's speaking, and he comes in in a wheelchair and puts himself right in the front. And then at the end of, of the presentation, Malcolm asks, Are there any questions? And that boy raises his hand. And here's... What he says, he says, sir, if God is a God of love, then why me? See, all philosophical questions eventually become personal, don't they? Why me? Why me? And uh, this is what's written about that encounter. Malcolm walks off the stage, places his hand on the boy's soldier, uh, sh- shoulder, bends down to speak to him on his level, and then he asks the question, okay, the right words at the right time. And it changes the entire focus. And he asks, if you were fit, would you have come here tonight? And the youth shakes his head and says, no, I wouldn't. And Malcolm then begins to speak. He says to the boy, God has asked a hard thing of you. But remember, he asked something even harder of his son, Jesus Christ. 
he asked Jesus to die for you. And he did. Maybe, notice he used the word maybe, maybe this was his way of making sure you'd hear of his love and come to put your faith in him. Malcolm never healed the boy of his inability to walk. but he, We're in an age right now where uh, there is a lot of talk about social justice. And I agree that social justice is of extreme importance. Helping these orphans in Romania grow to adulthood and get the chances they've never had before, that's fairly important. Helping people out of uh, human trafficking and the sex trade. and th- These are the issues that are they're just burning issues. And the church... These seem to be something that the church and the government can get involved in and, and do it together. That's pretty good, seeing a church and a government work together. When's the last time that happened? Okay. Uh, but now let's weigh things, okay? Come on, let's just weigh things. Um, <clears throat> in light of eternity, you tell me which is the heaviest weight. That this boy both understands why he was crippled, you know, why me, and uh, maybe even be healed, which is no record that it ever happened, or that this boy hears that through faith in Jesus, he can have an eternal life with God. Um, this is something to think about, and it's, it's the question of the age. I'm not about to say which one weighs the heaviest. We can't give up either, can we? We have to be speaking about both. But I promise you this. The church and the people of the church are the only ones who can look you in the eye and say you could have eternal life through Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it another way. The church and the people of the church are the only ones who can say it's not your works that will get you to heaven. It's your trust. You have to go and weigh those. By the way, you have to weigh yourself. You have to be thinking, because, hey, I'm involved in social justice. I need to get more involved. But as I'm dealing with people and in their lives, do you have a secure knowledge that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins? And have you put your trust in him? Let's pray. Wow, almighty God. I was hoping for sermon light. Really, what we are dealing with is not just human suffering, but human destiny. And in all the answers in all the world, only Jesus says, trust in me. I will not make you any promises of physical healing, so people are still being healed but I will make you promise nobody else can. 
by trust in me, you will be with me forever in heaven. Where's your trust? What are your questions? These are things that we have to leave and dwell with. These are the most important questions of a life. Jesus offers you answers which you are allowed to consider and allowed to reject. But you'll find answers like his nowhere else. You'll find reasons like his nowhere else. What a God. What a son. Lord, we praise you now. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.